Welcome to The Intern Whisperer, the show all about the future of work and internships. My name is Isabella, and this week's Intern Whisperer Employer Tip of the Week is employers, when you are onboarding your interns in your company, be sure to give them access to platforms that you will want them to use. For example, if it's a marketing intern, do they need to have access to your CRM? Are they going to use Hootsuite? What are all of the platforms and the social channels that they need to have access. It requires you to sit through and think about that process to make sure that you are creating a very efficient process, you're creating a training program, and that is one of the ways that you have a very successful internship experience for yourself and the student. So today's guest is Jeff Stillman, a creative writer And we're going to be talking about the future of writing, which is super exciting to me because I was an English major and I also am a big fan of writing. And I was telling Jeff before the show is when I was 12 years old, I wrote these ridiculously, I thought they were amazing chronicles of Wendy. She was a detective, kind of like a Nancy Drew character that has come back into some Vogue channels. Anyway, I was solving all of these crimes and I go back and I read it when I really want to laugh at myself. And it is so pathetic. I am like, tears are rolling down my face. I'm not kidding. It is one of those belly laughs. And I go, oh, I think I may even share them sometime with Elizabeth and Axel so they can (laughs) have a, (laughs) they can laugh with me and they go, you thought you were good? No, I, I did at that time. Go ahead, and I'm going to have Elizabeth kick us off. So, Elizabeth. Yeah, good morning, Jeff. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your educational background and your first job. Sure, and good morning to you. Before I begin, Isabella, I too would also like to read those Chronicles of Wendy, by all means. <laughs> educational background. Uh, strangely enough, I did my, well, probably not too strange. I did my undergraduate in psychology. I was on a career path to become a therapist. I actually started two different graduate level educational programs in counseling psychology and clinical psychology. Did, did my due time there, did well, but then realized it wasn't for me. And then kind of had to step away for a bit, did some soul searching as it were, and realized what I've always kept in my back pocket was this kind of writing thing. Because I'd, I'd been a musician since I was 14, 15, and was, didn't mind expressing myself and showing the public that. But when it came to writing, whether it's poetry or my prose fiction, predominantly starting out, that's something I only showed a few friends and or family. And I was like, you know what? Time to come out of the closet, as it were, and um, embrace this side of me and just live it. The second part of your question was, was education and you said my first job? Is that what it was? Yeah, yeah your first job. First job. This is fun. Let's see here. It was, it was a small, before this kind of chain of Japanese retail shops that you'll pop up. I don't know. I'm not sure what they're called now. It was like the first iteration of that. And honestly, I was, I think, 16 at the mall. And the, the gal who's a, a single owner, wonderful person, had two employees. I was one of them. And she was just like, stand here and make sure no one's, nobody steals anything. I'm like, <laughs> okay, it's fine. And then occasionally I would run the trash. It lasted for all of maybe a summer. I don't know. That sounds like a really easy job. <laughs> to, to some degree yeah I was hoping to work the register at some point and I think I even communicated that she's like no I just need you to stand over here and I said oh, okay that's fine were you a really tall guy is that why you looked intimidating I'm thinking like you know I do I do stand at 6'3 currently at 16 not quite as tall maybe it was just more presence charisma mm-hmm. maybe 
I don't know. Tall people. They're, Tall they people. are intimidating. That's for sure. I'm 5'2", so believe me, anybody, I'm sitting there going, holy cow. You're like Isabella, really you, couldn't, you couldn't fool me. You couldn't fool me. What? You thought I was taller? Oh, absolutely. Oh, no. I'm 5'2". Yeah, I'm short. <laughs> okay, so why did you choose to start your own creative writing career? Because you have to have a day job, I'm pretty sure, because Still it do. takes a while to break into this, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think any creative pursuit, I mean, there's always a high saturation in those fields and negotiating the barrier of entry is always trying, always difficult. I have an acting background as well. And there was thoughts post high school, if that's something I was going to pursue. And I just, I, you kind of weigh the effort versus the passion. And I knew mm -hmm. that when I did it, it made me happy, but the grind that was involved, my hat's off. I'll leave this one on, but my hat's <laughs> off to those who endure that because there's a lot of planning that goes into it. And you kind of have to mentally prepare yourself like, okay, do I need to go do this? Because it is a weekly pursuit and it is a life that you kind of commit years to doing. I heard some sort of statistic that even for actors, it takes a good 10 years before they get really established and start picking up some traction. And I had to be like, well, 18, I guess I could check out, kind of evaluate where I'm at six years in. I don't know the whole, the whole endeavor. It could also just been a little fear and maybe some excuses, but it just wasn't where I was at at the time. And I got slightly off topic. What was the question? Let me go back to it. How did you start your career? I agree with you. I'm going to jump into it because when you said 10 years, absolutely. I have multiple companies and the IRS will give you, you know, it's two years. If you haven't made money mm -hmm. in two years, what you've got is a hobby and now they've extended it to three years and they'll say, mm -hmm. okay, even by business standards. And because we're talking about the ability to provide for yourself, really. So whether it's going to be writing or if it's acting or just starting a business, the grind is the real word. That is so true because yeah. I get up and do this and I work every day, seven days a week, 365 mm -hmm. days in my startup. And I would never do that in a regular job. Never. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what I can say, if we, if we appeal to Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours, I think before I started or attempted the craft of writing, which I don't think I really, I don't know, you start abstract thinking, what developmentally around 14, 15. So I was kind of thinking more laterally. So I think that's when, I, when it triggered for me, but I've always been a storyteller. So even as a kid, before I was actually taking on the craft of writing and because that's logic, that's structure, right? That's another side right. of your brain. I was always just a little story. You know, I'm the youngest of four children. So I was always a natural observer, hence my psychology degree. And I was became very fascinated with the human condition. I was a very self-aware kid. And so I would just watch these lives before me and I'd see how they were lived out. And I think naturally was just assimilating a narrative. And, you know, and when you're the youngest and I'm the only boy, firstborn, firstborn male, but youngest, three, old, three older sisters, you you get a lot of alone time and so there was a lot of just you know with little figurines making up stories as a kid and I as I matured and as I grew and you know life throws you through the spin cycle starting my quote writing career I'd say it actually started when I was a kid <laughs> it's just now it's just now taking the practical steps quote unquote make that a means for living you know which is what I've been putting all my energy and effort to almost in this last year and it's I'll tell you what on top of like I my my analogy is it's just right now I'm spinning plates right I'm a dad I have a 13 year old daughter 
I do have a day job. I'm in this wonderful relationship, but I'm also having to, to do me as well. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's challenging and you really have to prioritize where you put your energy. And luckily I'm surrounded with wonderful family and friends who understand that I need that time. Mm-hmm. And that I'm trying to prioritize, prioritize this and, and pivot, if not lane change career-wise. That's good stuff there. Elizabeth? Yeah, absolutely. I really resonate with what you said about having that support system around you that will help guide you into the path that you want to go to. That makes a lot of sense. And especially with the 10,000 hours, the grind that you're talking about, I'm, I'm thinking that once you get home, you know, if you get home, you know, you're going to need those people behind you that are going to help push you forward and take care of you. What would you say are some of the challenges to getting published professionally? I know I touched on it a bit earlier, but that's one of those things you encounter as a creative is where's my entry point? I think what comes to mind is having a network, which is a lot of what catalyzed my considering even getting an MFA, largely because I wanted to, I pursued that route because I know I wanted to enhance my writing game from a technical standpoint. Because I know that that would throw me into a den of other writers because I've never really been part of a writing community per se. And since I have been, it's been, you know, the word comes to mind. I was going to dodge it, but I'll say it. it's been magical because you get this real time constructive feedback and that just ups your game. Any kind of group setting where you're developing either yourself and or your craft, it is iron sharpening iron. That, that was one of the incentives for getting into a program. The other option being, I should also tell into that, getting a network, getting planted in a network, meeting people through the, the school I'm currently at, Full Sail University, where I'm getting my MFA, has a heavy amount. I need to tell our listeners what MFA means. I know what it means, but I, I don't ever assume our listeners do. Master of Fine Arts. Yep, there master, you go. Master, master of Fine Arts in Creative Writing, which is what I'm doing. It's a terminal degree in that, I mean, you can always option to go higher at a doctoral level or a PhD, but typically, and Isabel, you could probably speak to this more or be more articulate on this than I can, but to my knowledge, terminal means you don't necessarily need to go higher than that, right? Employers, prospectives see that and go, okay, you're good. You know, he doesn't necessarily need a, a doctor or something next to his name or a PhD. And as a quick aside, I know that graduate level education I mean, this is why I try to pursue in, in psychology as well. That's something that I've always endeavored towards to circle back. Having that network of people was also going to be something that I would hope to leverage and to situate me in the career wanted. Only other option of not going to graduate school was just to try to do the Hollywood screenwriter thing, which mm-hmm. is you, you go do these night courses, you get a certificate, and, you, and again, you just kind of grind, Right. And you hopefully you meet people along the way and you can, there's other writing circles, which I'm sure I'll carry on, maybe look at even after the program. I mean, I've built a lot of great relationships so far with my cohort. It hasn't been said, but chances are we will keep in contact. I mean, we're all on Slack. We all got our Slack connection. So that's going to stay even after graduation. And the question was about publishing. Publishing, <laughs> publishing. I'm still navigating that in real time, full transparency. The only other publishing experience I had has been in songwriting which again, I got a song featured in an independent film called Noble Fur. And that I handled directly. I didn't have a middle person, an agent or anything like that. It was someone who said, hey, can I put this thing in my trailer for my independent film? I'm about to run it around in some circuits, some film circuits, festivals and whatnot. And I said, sure, let me see the trailer. And, and we talked about it and it just seemed to fit. And they just, it was granted, it was a permission thing. 
I know that publication transactionally kind of looks like that. I don't know if that's an official publication, but I know that that kind of exchange is the experience I have with that. I've yet to have that full kind of experience with writing, although I'm getting a lot of know-how and have been since I've been in this program. Yeah, I think publishing is, they've made it a lot easier with the ability to do self-publishing and it will walk you through the steps on how to actually do that. Does go better if you have somebody else that you can pay to do it because (laughs) it can be a costly mistake because it's like, I was walking around this morning at FedEx to get some copies made. And when I was in there, I I like to go look at books and I was looking at the books that are there. And I was thinking about, I wonder if these are self-published because if I had a publisher, my publisher would make sure I was in every FedEx across the country, right? Maybe even around the world that my book was there because I was looking at some of them and one of them was Michael J. Fox. It was, you know, the future of whatever, because, you know, it was him now with Parkinson's and looking at his past and his future. It was, it looked like a good book, but then there were these other books that were up there and I went, that has got to be somebody that did self-publishing or they had a publisher that helped them get a book out there because I was going, I don't know who these people are. It's interesting to me. I I wanted to write a book and the book that I, I did write it, I have not published it though. It was, I did it with my mom before she died. And I wanted to write a children's book and it was called God is Dog Spelled Backwards. That's the title. And it was all about the characteristics that a dog has that really seemed to also resemble what I think are the, believe are the characteristics that God shows us. The, the love, you know, unconditional love. I walk in that house, that dog is always happy to see me. I can walk out and come back in, that dog is always happy to see me. And I just sit there and I go, wow, if if people were as happy to see me when I walk in the door as this dog, that would be amazing. The forgiveness, the ability that they just are really a good you know, confidant. And I did this whole thing and I would tie it into Bible verses and I would sit in the hospital with my mom. It was in her last round of chemo that she was doing. We would talk about it and it was a really sweet memory and I wanted her participation. I've got to get an illustrator for it. And then I was just going to self-publish it and just do it as a download for free, honestly, just to see what would happen with it. But there are other things that I would definitely write, and it's not going to be that PhD dissertation only, but <laughs> it is it is like wisdom. I have this video series I'm setting up called Behind the HR Curtain, and I feel like that's a really good name for a book also, mm-hmm. because it's like, hey, what what is that? And so that wisdom, and I think that is what most people want and why they like books. If I can add to that, hopefully not take away. I think with regard to animals and our dogs and our things in nature, it's come to reason, at least for me, that like a dog is perfectly a dog, right? And if anything, they're kind of like these living sacraments that remind us of, oh, you are perfectly you. I'm just going to be me and I'm Mm -hmm. going to relish that. And I'm okay because the dog's like, look, I'm wagging my tail. I'm happy. You should try that, yeah. you know, to some degree. I mean, we, we were just for Memorial Day week, girlfriend and I were out hiking and it was just a tranquil moment on the, on these, I'm just seeing these wild lavender flowers and we're on this trail and I just have a moment where it's just a moment of presence. You kind of go, I'm just thinking this tree is perfectly a tree. You know, this flower is perfectly a fly. It's just like, it's not trying to be anything else but itself. 
mm-hmm. and, it, and it's present. It's not thinking about, I wish I was a cheetah, you know, <laughs> or God, I wish I was something else. It's, or I wish I was somewhere else. It's just like not fighting. It's not attaching itself. It's just being, you know? Mm-hmm. So anyways, that, that's what made me think. I thought, I thought that was worth sharing. So I'm going to build on top of that too, because I like the conversation for sure. I think that we learn from everything in nature and that, you know, animals, I taught Sunday school and I learned so much about adults from working with two and three-year-olds because basically we're all a two and a three-year-old on the inside. Sure. But I was also walking my dog and I also realized how short-sighted people are because I'm sitting here, I walking my dogs. I have two dogs. We're walking. I see a tennis ball. It's on the other side in the grass of a big fence. I pick this tennis ball up. My dog only sees me with this ball in my hand. That is it. That is all they see. And it's a big open field. And so I hurled that, you know, tennis ball over it. My dog takes off running, keeping his eye on the ball, runs straight into the fence. And I'm like, (laughs) that is how people are. We focus on one thing and we miss the big picture that's right in front of us because like I might be going, oh God, I need a neon sign to tell me what it is that you want me to do. Instead, I, if I paid attention to even the little things, I would realize, oh no, he is talking to me. I'm a very spiritual girl. Jesus girl with a potty mouth is what I tell people. You can learn from every situation. I think I say that quite a bit to Axel because I pay attention to (laughs) people a lot and I really like working with him I know he's being super good he's being very quiet and respectful here of the conversation so it's Elizabeth's first time for being on the show thank you there Axel but we can learn from everybody regardless of age can learn from everything in nature if we only slow down and be present like what you're saying Absolutely. I think that a lot of it points back to there's a tendency there's a general anxiety I think most of us have especially in our particular society, I feel for there's, I don't know if you know who Thomas Merton is, Trappist monk, died in the late 60s. He's one of my favorite authors, monastic gentleman. He's quote him verbatim. I'll try to, he says, you know, we tend to reach out for things we were told to reach out for. And there's a, uh, we, we, we have these superficial automatisms, which is just these things that, again, we're just kind of programmed to kind of go to. We interact with things that told to interact with. And it all being said, it takes us away from ourselves and it takes us out of the present, you know, whether it's a person or a thing. And what that ends up looking like when that becomes excessive is it looks like control. And so we try to control our environment or we try to control other people. And we become unconsciously codependent on these other things to provide something for us. And then we have these highs and lows because sometimes it feels like a reward moment. We're like, oh, that feels good because I had something to do with that. And, and, but that's counterfeit because a lot of us, when we exhaust ourselves, you know, we feel powerless. So we reach out for counterfeit power. And we realize that the true power is just retaining that, knowing that you can only control you and how you respond in situations and our people. And you kind of just unattach. It's like the dog wagging its tail. It's like, it knows it needs you to feed it you know, and, and all that stuff. But at the same time, it's not apologizing for who it is. It's still retaining all its power. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was saying that similar conversation yesterday with Axel, we were doing another show and I was talking about, I have really no control. I will be 50% responsible for whatever the issue is with another person. 
not always I can be 100% responsible if it's my fault for sure. But mm. in this instance, I was saying about that and I said, but I can teach you to a certain place, but it's your job to take whatever it is that you're being taught and decide what you're going to do with it. You can show I, him nobody, the door, but yes, he has to walk exactly. through it. That is exactly right. And each I, one of us has to do that, right? Yeah. Axel, you are Neo in this situation. It's the matrix. Yeah. <laughs> what you didn't know is that Isabella is Morpheus. <laughs> I am. Well, hmm. the red pill, the blue pill. That's right. <laughs> yeah, but he he also didn't he didn't make it through that. But you know he is that Jesus. Well, no, Keanu Reeves was. There's, the there's a lot of allegory there. Yeah. yeah, it definitely is. Yeah. All right. So, what are the seven P's of story structure, and how does it help improve writing? I, know I don't think I know these. I was an English major. I'm sitting there going, I'm going to have to look that up. So I'm there, going to throw that out there. There's not, you know, it's something, a, an influential professor I had in my undergrad. My first major was in psychology. In fact, I, I went to school to become a, like a spiritual leader. And then I take it. You mean a priest? Yeah, priest, pastor kind of thing. Okay. And which is a whole different life now behind me. But I took a dramatic writing elective. She, we, we had to write out these pieces and then perform them. And I wrote something a little dark for that particular school, but she was a writer. She was a creative and she kind of leaned in. She took me out to lunch. So I want to talk about this piece. It's a little dark. And she's like, but before I get to that, she's like, what is your major? And I said, oh, it's, uh, God, I forget some, something with ministry or whatever. She's like, why? <laughs> she's like, you, she's like, you should be writing. You should be this and that. So she's the first one to kind of validated creative aspect of, I do this and I don't mean, I don't mean to derail. Because I'm always want to set up with an antidote and then tie in with an answer directly to the question. What was the question again? What are the seven P's oh, right. of yeah, yeah, story yeah. structure? Okay. It was her. So in her class, she pulled a lot of a lot from Aristotle, and these were the seven P's of dramatic criticism. And she and I remember her disclaimer was she's like, "I'm about to ruin your movie-going experience forever." Because it's kind of like I know it's a reference to what we just talked about, but this is kind of like you see the code in the Matrix, right? So the P's essentially, and as in every story, you have a person right? That, that's your protagonist. That, that's, that's the hero. And you think protagonist being a P word, but it's not, we're going to say person. And that person has, you know, I like to use Indiana Jones as, as kind of a model of this. So you have Indiana Jones, that's our person. And then you have, they have a peculiar trait, right? Archaeologist, good with a whip, cavalier, afraid of snakes. And then he has a passion and that base, and that passion ties in essentially with the plot of the film. So if it's Last Crusade, he's trying to get the Holy Grail, right? So that's his passion for that. I mean, there's been a bunch of Indiana Joneses, but let's just use that for example. That's passion. And then so that's three Ps. And in the middle, you have plans and pitfalls, right? Which is the bulk of the movie. And oh, I should say in the first 15 minutes, we know who the person is, the peculiar trait, and the passion. 10 to 15 minutes. We usually know that of a film. And then the bulk, the meat of it, plans and pitfalls. I'm trying to get here. Oh, no, it's another Nazi trying to kill me. And then... Um, <laughs> That's essentially plans of pitfalls. And then we reach the moment of peril, which is the climax typically. And the peril ties in essentially with the passion. We're thinking this whole time, this guy needs to get the Holy Grail. It, the story doesn't end up being about that. The twist is, which happens at climaxes as well, is that it's a story about him reuniting with his father and building a better relationship with Sean Connery, as it were, Dr. Jones. They're both doctors, but it becomes about that because it always involves a choice, right? And if you recall, he's hanging in the chasm right? What's her face? The blonde Nazi girl was also reaching for it. And he's like, honey, you, you, you're slipping. You're going to go. And she goes, right? Because her choice, she chooses that. He, he finds himself in the same predicament. A few seconds later, he's like, dad, because, you know, Sean Connery's holding on one hand. He's reaching for the girl with the other. 
if he chose the grill, he wouldn't change, right? That's story. The protagonist doesn't change. If he chose the grill, that's, and what was brilliant is that what that reveals is death, is that he just dies. But no, he turns around and he sees his father and we have this classic archetype of the father figure and everything else. And so in a sense, we know that it's peace, which is the last P. Is it peace, question mark? Well, it's, if it wasn't peace, then it would be a tragedy. Mm. So in his case, he chose father, he changed, right? Because that whole movie, they had this kind of coarse tension back and forth, Julia, you know, him scolding him and all this other stuff. My poor Sean Connery impression. So that's, he rekindles that. So there's your seven Ps. I will say this as a disclaimer for anybody listening or whatever, don't get too lost on that structurally because I, it's been pointed out by other professors that I'm really fixated on structure because who knows, we can, that's a different conversation. Don't use that as a template. Use it as a viewer because uh, I don't want that, the, the, the fear or the concern is that they'll go, oh, I have to fit and I have to hit these marks. Maybe we're getting this in a later question, but when you write, just start writing. Like if you're a discovery writer, just start writing. You'll fit in the structure later. I know, but I'll, I'm only speaking for me. I know other writers who are just like, no, I start structure first, outline first. And then I hit my points later. I just fill in the gaps, you know, like you're doing one of those Mad Libs games. Can't do that. But anyways, yeah, that's the seven Ps of dramatic criticism. I really, I learned quite a bit from there. I don't think they covered that at all with me. And I was an English major. Yeah. But I know that there's four P's in marketing. And mm. I was going, I wonder if it's very similar, you know, product placement price. Sure. Yeah. Well, I, I will say, and if I didn't make that clear, that, I feel like that was my professor's thing. I don't think that that was a known universal thing in the literary world or the English world. I think that she just made it all P's and it all just kind of seemed to fit. You know, I know for me, I find that helpful because I'm just starting this grant thing that I applied for and the end product of it is supposed to be a play. So I'm going to be writing a play and I'm very excited about it, but I also don't have a whole lot of guidance on how to do it. So having like the seven P's of story structure makes a lot of sense, actually. I should also, more disclaimers, um, I should also say that that's geared more towards film watching and or the screenplay experience. It, it, it is versatile in that you can use it for prose fiction, you can use it for playwriting. It's a good place to start just to get a peripheral understanding of story structure, I think. But there's, since I've been in this program, I've read loads and loads. I mean, there's whole books dedicated to plot alone and what that means and premise and why this is important. And you have people who write extensively on these things. So I think peripherally to get a good understanding is maybe as a practice, mess with those seven Ps and just write quick little, who's my person, Wendy. Her peculiar trait, she's kind of like Nancy Drew. It's her passion. She wants to solve crimes, whatever. Isabel, this is all for you. This is free, by the way. I know. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm free. enjoying the ride, so it's yeah. good. Right. Elizabeth, you're up. What would you say triggers writer's block, and how do you push through it when it happens? I liken writer's block to any other form of anxiety, you know, because you're trying to control something that hasn't happened, and you want it to happen, and then you get really fixated on it happening. We call it writer's block because we're in a we're in a situation where I'm working on something and nothing's coming out, right? Well, similarly, I mean, I find myself in having a difficult conversation with either my kid or my significant other, and nothing's coming out. I'm having a block, mm-hmm. and really, I think all it is, it kind of looks like at its base, it's an amalgam of fear and frustration in that moment. And I think like you would remedy that, like you would do anything else, it's just step away. There's some practical things meditation, do a bit of yoga, 
because mind body it's all connected move the body if the mind is still right breathe don't forget your breath is kind of everything and so you're intentional so i don't know go for a walk and do some breathing exercises there's one i do the easy way to remember it is six six twelve you breathe them for six hold for six and release for 12 seconds um so you breathe in for six hold it and then release for 12 out of your nose um, and I'll do that just as a meditation, eyes open or closed. Personally, I'll put on some like, I like the sound of bells, like meditation bells. And you can go on Spotify and just search meditation bells and you'll, people have compiled extensive playlists and I'll just have those on shuffle. And it's really pleasant. They're not like high tinny, you know, orchestra bells. Um, they're really deep resonant kind of bells and I'll put those on and I just, I'll have that and I'll try to follow the ringing of the bell while I'm breathing. And even when I'll teach jujitsu, um, we begin every class with a little bell. When we were meeting pre-COVID inside, we would have as part of the team is we'd open up with that. Everyone sits on their knees or the word is seiza, a Japanese word. And we sit on our knees, we hit the bell and then we're breathing in and out. And what, the idea is you breathe in as the bell crescendos, and then as it decrescendos, you're breathing out, right? And that, as we circle way back and back, is practice of presence. The block itself is you're trying to negotiate a barrier, right? And all that is, is you becoming obsessed with the fact that you have a block. And then you start ruminating and you fixate on it. So my remedy for that is just to decentralize. Get up from wherever you're at if you actually need to move your body. If you can't move for whatever reason, then, you know, sit back in your chair, put on those bells, breathe. You have easily accessible techniques and they're all free for the most part. Yep. So sounds like our next question though, is how much of yourself do you put into your writing? And I can see that it's very therapeutic. It is holistic because it is your martial arts. And I know we have a question about that. That was one of mm -hmm. Axel's questions too. But there is this place where I, I see this in graphic designers and I see it in artists. It is their personality. Everything that they choose to, whether it's to paint, to craft, to model, I always see a person's personality, their preferences, just like you had mentioned before in mm -hmm. that writing. So it sounds like you're 100% in your writing. And that also is a way that you can release tension. You can also be able to use it to put yourself into a super creative mood. I think it's everything. Yeah, I think that makes me think of you indulge in activities that yield a flow state, right? A state of flow, and really all that means is that there's nothing obscuring your path with regard mm -hmm. to how you're having this experience. And then also number two, I'm, my intention more now than ever is to be deliberate about how I'm expressing myself because like I just circle the point back to what I talked about earlier, we're, we're very prone to give our power away to people and or things. Mm -hmm. And I think we retain that when we honestly express ourselves. So martial arts is kind of two part for me in that I, it's an athletic way I can express my body physically. And then, but there is a, there is a, mental and spiritual component there as well. Those are never separated, but that is a way I can move and think without thinking and whatever we get into those concepts. But I think writing is another activity where you just fully express yourself and whether, and I, and I see it as, as the ground wire of expressing yourself, whether I'm interacting with someone new 
or a friend I see again, you know, I'm very conscious to very conscious about my words because words are form <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and I need to be, however I'm, I'm trying to best express an idea needs to be the most honest expression of, of that idea. When I delineate from that, it's because I'm insecure about something or I'm fearful of something or I'm anxious, you know, call it, you know, the label that brand that however you want. But I find that I feel the best, feel the most free, feel most like me when, whether it's writing, and that's what we're talking about, or in interacting because it's ultimately integrity. Integrity is the integral thing that binds you together. It's the glue. And if I know that if I delineate or act away from that, then I'm giving my power away or I'm feeling less than. So whatever I create needs to be something honest, right? It needs to be me. It needs to have, you know, it needs to just be my self-expression because that is a satisfaction that is just unparalleled. That was beautiful, wasn't it, Elizabeth? It was gorgeous. I I wanted to circle back to just a couple of the things that you said, because it it resonated so much with me. I'm an actor as well as a couple other things, but I'm very much into acting and I do a lot of physical acting, like a lot of the Suzuki technique. And yeah, so just a lot of like very physical, like moving your body and like moving all of you with it. And I think it was something you said a little bit ago about how like your body and your mind are one. And so often we are prone to separate the two things and think that they are different from the other I think it's going back to when we were talking about writer's block but you really are we are just a person we aren't separate so if your mind is is uh, dysfunctioning then you need to move your body because all of you needs to be functioning correctly but I really resonate with what you said yeah it's parts of the whole right yeah each 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 thing kind of represents the whole but you know it's it's all bound and I think in the, the methods we do have methods you cited a few the whole aim is to have a have a presence of mind about them, have a mindfulness about, you know, when you scan your body head to toe, when you scan your mind, you have to, and here's another idea, you have to kind of understand that you're that you are not your mind, right? Yeah. That you that you are not your thoughts. And I think that we tend, and if you're not aware of that, <laughs> it might be an idea you need to chew on for a bit. Because I think people think that they are their emotions, when really emotions are very fleeting things, mm-hmm. which is why the actor can by way of training summon them and become them for a scene but then if you know and maybe you've had the experience or have seen behind the scenes actors have a calm down period especially Mm -hmm. if something's really emotionally intense because to summon that emotion it's usually having to call upon some sort of painful memory that Mm -hmm. they can that they have to viscerally relive to Mm -hmm. sell that scene Mm -hmm. and they'll do it because that's the craft Mm -hmm. now that makes me think for a moment that happens to me with writing as well if I'm writing something that is difficult, I know I want to go there because I need this to be true. It is to be honest. Mm-hmm. And, but at least I know I'm mentally prepared. As long as you have an awareness that before you step in, mm-hmm. you know, I'm going to step into this room where I'm going to be indulging some, some old wounds. Mm-hmm. But, but the beauty of it is that you can indulge them because you've already dealt with them. So it's not like you're resurrecting the zombie that's coming out to attack you and give you the same pain it did the first time it hurt you. It's just, you're looking at the memory through, through a safe window and kind of mm-hmm. go, ah, yeah, that's when that happened. And then you step away from the window and you go, I'm okay. Let's let, let me, give me a moment to breathe. And then we'll go get yogurt. <laughs> exactly. And it's, it's those grounding techniques you were talking about that help you exit the scenario and still be okay. Yeah. And I think something Isabella touched on as well, when she mentioned therapy, the, the, there, there's inherent to any art form that we create or indulge or consume is catharsis, 
right? Mm -hmm. That cathartic kind of experience because you that helps you to develop and learn something. Because if life is not anything, it is about growth, right? And I think that we get that from different things. Mine just happens to be in the most ways I've grown and find flow states, which I may find synonymous with growth, is my martial arts training that I've been doing all my life. The way I express myself with writing. You know, I like to say it's music and I've had some transcendent moments with creating music and it's great, but I tell you what, I get it more with writing and, and you just, that's just figuring that out as you live life as it were. Yeah, absolutely. I think it was Aristotle who brought up the idea of catharsis and that we all need, especially in theater and I believe in writing too, we need to watch somebody else go through something sometimes really traumatic or horrendous just so that we also like get to like be with them on that stage or in that book and feel what they're feeling and get that out of our systems too. Absolutely. Yeah. And, it, it, and that's why, and in, in, in that way, it can be a very healing process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For sure. I feel like I'm in a really good therapy session. <laughs> I'm not, I mean, I mean that with all sincerity and kindness. I'm sitting here going, man, I feel myself like just kind of drifting in a good way. It's like, good. ooh, healing. Yes. Great conversation. Totally enjoying this. Oh, I was just going to, I was going to ask him a little bit more about martial arts and how that uh, has helped you in your writing or perhaps developing some of your characters. Sure. Well, I know I touched on a lot of more of the ethereal, more abstract aspects of how martial arts has influenced me as a person and has allowed mm-hmm. me to express my ways, cr- myself creatively, e- even within the martial art itself. You know, I, I teach a traditional form of jujitsu, not the Brazilian jujitsu stuff. You'll see the stuff that kind of preceded that. And so our whole system's in Japanese, but it's like the equivalent of old English. It's old Japanese. And some of it's relevant today, but you, you have to learn it to teach it. And so that was kind of fun too. And so with, within that, we have forms, kata, which I'm sure you guys probably heard, um, kata. But then we also have waza. Waza is kind of synonymous with like a freestyle expression of it. So when you advance in the ranks, we put you in kind of like these situations where someone's just going to come at you and you just need to respond. Because at this point, your training needs to become instinct, right? And that is another flow state for me, right? There's no thinking. Because if you're thinking about shifting in the second, you know, let's make this easier. I think C.S. Lewis said, you know, so long as you go on thinking about the kind of impression you want to make, you'll never make it. And what mm. that is indicative of is too many mind. It's a reference to The Last Samurai. It's, it's, it's said to Tom Cruise and, and, his, and his character. It's just like, you have too many mind. You're thinking way too much. The, again, the mind, you are not it. It gets in the way. It's a great tool. It's going to help you decide when to stop at a traffic light and when to go, right? It's mm-hmm. having that dualistic mindset. You need that uh, as a tool, but you have to get past that. You know, that there is a, there's a time where you're going to play scales on the guitar and you're going to be thinking this, 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 this. And then, but eventually you're going to stop thinking and you're just going to play jazz. You're just going to yeah. flow. And that's kind of like where you need to go. So short, short answer, long, long answer, short. My knowledge, speaking more concretely, my knowledge of martial arts has definitely influenced a lot of my narratives just because I'm just like my own encyclopedia of everything from techniques to the names of things to the history, the historicity of all these different martial arts and where they came from. And I, I do, I, I wrote a, uh, I wrote a pilot. Uh, it's a kind of a medieval fantasy. It's got a lot of camp, uh, very much. It's kind of a nineties love letter to kind of Hercules and Xena and all those things. But I like to say it's intelligible camp, but when I was writing that, that protagonist, which his name is Hank, when I have to write action scenes, it's kind of seamless. 
because mm-hmm. I know where the body should be. I know if a sword were to swing here, where the stepping would go. So from just a very practical and technical standpoint, that's kind of second nature for me. And that has, from a, yes, from a practical standpoint, tangible standpoint, that's how the martial arts has helped. But they've also helped with just a lot of these ideas that have helped me to grow as a person as well. And, that, and that'll roll over into how I create characters and their motives and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah. Growing up, I didn't write detective stories, but I did do martial arts. (laughs) (laughs) I did too. I think we all did. I'm pretty sure we all did. But I I know I took those classes in college for sure. My parents encouraged me to try everything when I was in college because they said, you don't know what you're going to like and what you're not going to like. So I did everything from karate to belly dancing to you know, astronomy to, you know, biology and, you know, everything across the board. And I took full advantage of that. So glad that my parents encouraged me to do those things. Anyway, okay, so next question. How do you develop an antagonist that is a foil to your protagonist? And you might need to define those two terms for our listeners. Yeah, so um, typically the protagonist is your hero, right? the one where the story happens to, right? It's something that interrupts their daily life and then they're projected forward, right? Both with plot and everything else and incentive and all that stuff. The antagonists uh, and the, let's try to sound cooler than I am, A, and it's the anti, right? The anti-protagonist. It's like the, Christ the, and antichrist. Yeah. Sure, yeah, or anarchist, we'll go with that. anarchist, right? So yeah, the antagonist, more often than not drives the plot. They're essentially the reason why the protagonist does what they do. In most cases, not all, because there's sometimes the, and sometimes the antagonist takes the form, most often takes the form of a person or um, a character, let's just say character, or, or they come in the form of obstacle, right? You, you have different plots. You have, you know, traditionally, it used to be say man versus man, but now we'll say person versus person, person versus nature, person versus the supernatural, and yeah. person person versus themselves. Mm-hmm. Classically, that's typically kind of what you get throughout all story. The follow, whether it's film or prose fiction or any kind of thing that has a journey, quote unquote, of a hero who needs to, you know, learn something you know, get something, whether it's like a magic, you know, we'll use Joseph Campbell's word, getting the elixir. They have to leave their known life to, you know, use Neo as an example, leaves his known life. He enters the matrix and what does he have to do? Right. So he's got to read and then he'll get the elixir, get the salve and he'll return back to his known world to save it. You know, that's, that's kind of more or less how that works. So, and the antagonist on the way, right. You have the agents, you have things like that, everything trying to thwart them thwart him from making that happen. That is a really good explanation for that. And you used, I think, relatable characters that from either works of art, books, or movies that people could relate to. Mm. I don't know of anybody who hasn't seen The Matrix. I'd be surprised (laughs) anymore because it's one of those films that they definitely show in school for that exact purpose, like what you're describing. And also for, you know, know, the Christ character. It's very popular for that. Mm-hmm. And it's something that's super helpful when people can relate to real world examples that they go, oh, I did not know that. <laughs> and they have the coolest outfits. So, oh, mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would watch it just alone for Neo's like long black trench coat. I think so cool. <laughs> yeah, just the, the, the aesthetics in that film are yeah very pleasing. 
Impeccable. It's going to be everybody's Halloween costume this year. Pretty sure. <laughs> We're all going to go out and go, oh, let's go and do that. <laughs> all right. So Elizabeth, you're up. Yeah. Shifting gears just a lot. What do you think about like current correctional technologies, things like Grammarly or Spellcheck? And do you think we're too reliant on those? Are you asking the writer, the non-writer, the creative? However you choose to answer it, but I would think the writer perhaps. Sure. Well, I'll, I'll speak from, I'll speak for myself, you know, whether it's, whether it's script writing technology or software like Final Draft, whether it's the Adobe suite, I think there's high utility I think they're per their design, it's enough now to where they remain a strict utility. When they start doing things for us, when we start writing algorithms and or codes to just like, all you have to do is start the story, let me finish it. It's like, okay, to me, the auto correction, all that stuff, they're just tools and they need boundaries, Hmm. at least for me. It hasn't really entered my experience yet to rely on anything but my own creativity. If I do rely on, well, that's not true. If there is some sort of reliance, it is on my script writing software that it doesn't, you know, die and I, or doesn't auto save or something like that. And I need to finish this thing because I've already given it one week of my life and all my energy and everything else. And so, geez, Louise, it better not die on me. That's what I needed to do. That's how I'm reliant on it. But in terms of its place, as long as that doesn't escalate in some weird inhumane way, or it's, it starts to a sense steal and or suck creativity out of artists it should be like what i think it's doing but most of it is trying to provide more options for the artists to express themselves in the way they want to mm. and i think like they should be working for us instead of taking over and trying to produce some sort of ideal finished product that meets some strange criteria or criteria that's sellable or more marketable the person learn that just help them be a tool to help them learn that don't do it for them yeah i think we're going to talk a little bit more about those kind of technologies but i think that's a very good point that sometimes it can take away your creativity there's that function sometimes on certain things where it fills in the next like five words that you might say and sometimes that's helpful when I'm, you know what? Yeah. If it's a quick email, I'm like, mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. You know, okay. if it's something that's uh, practical, I mean, that's, that's helpful because I want to spend less time there, more time in the thing I want to create. Right. Mm-hmm. I get, I get it in that respect. The everyday, the kind of small talk, the quit, Hey, the who, what, where, why, when, when, you know, whatever, then, mm-hmm. then great. And with texting, sure. I believe in the efficiency in, in terms of that model, but when you cross the line and saying, Hey, have you thought about this for your script? Because here's a here's an idea, and mm-hmm. here's this or this. It's like, hey, man, let 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 me let me let me. That's my journey. Let me yeah. figure that out. You know. Yeah. And sometimes it can like take idea. Like you were you were processing something over here, and then it said like three words, and I completely forgot what you were just doing. That and that might mess with you too, because you know people mm-hmm. have different trigger words for things, and that might even bring up something emotional. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, I'm thinking real time. I mean, just, I just think that that could be really disruptive. It's a good thing. Yeah. Some of them have the option to turn them off. So that's helpful. Yes, indeed. We are really enjoying this conversation. So I'm going to be taking a quick break and we're going to have probably about 15 minutes left in our show. So it's been an amazing conversation. So we're going to recognize our sponsor, Cat5 Studios. The Intern Whisperer is brought to you by Cat5 Studios, who help you create games and videos for your training and marketing needs that are out of this world. Visit Cat5 Studios for more information to learn how Cat5 Studios can help your business. Thank you, Cat5 Studios. 
right, so we're back to our show and we are here to talk about internships and remembering somebody that gave us our first internship job and also jobs of the future. So let's move five to 10 years from now. What do you think the future of work is gonna look like, Jeff, in the writing industry? Because we did just leave that conversation about Grammarly and all of those other mm -hmm. predictive mm -hmm. tools that Google does and Outlook does where, oh, this is what you wanna say. I feel like the writing itself, maybe the criteria, a lot of it's just based on demographic and audience, right? And so writing is going to curb towards, and I'm talking about like, you know, big stuff, right? I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to add in indie independent writers and I'm just, I'm going to just, mm -hmm. I'll speak to the big stuff there. There's always trends in fashion in terms of genre, like what's hot right now, MCU, cool. Like we need another MCU movie or whatever. And so a lot of it's going to be curved and that's going to evolve and change. I think but I think the process of creating a story that will feel like that's just going to stay the same. Another thing I see possibly changing or evolving is just simply down to, to the business side of it, which is how we market. And because I feel like there's constantly a push to market better. How can we be more efficient? And what platforms are we doing? How can we better reach people? How can we better pull their time to their screen so they can watch our trailer? I feel like there's constantly ways to push that and put up marketing in places you wouldn't maybe possibly think that they'd be, right? Bathroom stall, I don't know. While you sleep, honestly, because sure. you can listen to things and you have mm -hmm. the Apple Watch and it's tracking everything that water intake when you go to the bathroom, everything about yeah. how you sleep. I mean, Big Big Brother wants you to know about <laughs> you know the next sequel of such and such coming out and then seamlessly slip back into your sleep program. You know, it's like, wait, wait what? And then maybe it wants to get into your subconscious somehow. And then mm -hmm. you wake up going, God, I really want to go see that movie. I don't know why. I just really want to see that. I'm going to go spend my 20 whatever dollars now that they are or something to, to go do this. And, and I, I hope not because that, that's, that's really invasive in a non-quote, non-invasive way. But a lot of it still stays on the frontier, as it were. In terms of its freedom, I think maybe what continues to also happen is this. And hopefully is happening also in real time is that the craft just continues to get refined, right? I know that even if you look at the, the screenwriter's Bible with uh, Trottier, which I know is kind of like the go-to handbook for most screenwriters, editions come out, right? New editions come out every, I don't know, however many years, because they'll show you, oh, well, we, we don't use Riley's or parentheses anymore. And here's how you use them. And that changes, format changes, right? And I see that continuing to evolve just as it has for the last however many years. Because ultimately, I'll leave it on this, people have a moment of pause because the, the, the shape of things now are typically the shape of the future. If we know there's something that just works now and it has been, then that's going to just be continue how it works until someone's either either innovative or finds a flaw with it, then we move on, right? Best mentoring advice that you want to pass on to our listeners? Sage gave a lecture two weeks ago and he said, um, the ego wants more, the soul wants less. I thought it was really good and insightful. And I think that ties into this notion of you take care of yourself because you want to rest in who you are. Despite your busy day, despite being an Isabella who does seven days a week, 365 years and whatever it, it is going to live forever. You have to still be at rest in your own body, despite being busy on the outside. Because you're, there's unrest when anxiety or depression or these other things you feel you need to be in order to be seen or in order to be loved. So a lot of the process is unbecoming all the things you think you need to be in order to be seen, loved, and or appreciated. When you realize right under your nose is you have everything you need. And it's you. 
because the statistics that you are actually brought into this world, look it up because it's kind of fantastic. You're here, you get this short life. I do believe that kind of immortal in some sense, different conversation, different podcast. But while you're here, you got this one and your only job is to, is to be present and to take responsibility for your life and taking ownership for your decisions, setting those boundaries and just taking freaking care of yourself and controlling that and not trying to control other people or trying to take care of other people. I mean, I get if you're a parent, there's aspects of that or maybe you have a pet, I get that, but not to the point of exhaustion. And that's where boundaries come in. I believe it was my therapist who told me this, um, but I was struggling over, you know, like having to pick one career option or the other. And she's like, you've been doing both forever. You don't have to choose either or. You don't have to box yourself into one thing or another because you've never been that person in the first place. So I think just allowing yourself to pursue what you want to pursue and you don't have to put any sort of direction in any way. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. be i think leading with curiosity even yeah. if it's within yourself go do the thing and yeah. leading also leading with curiosity when you meet new people or people who come from a different say ethnic background or religious background be completely curious and there's no loss to you there's this yeah. and there's no loss to you there's no cost to you here's another quote if you're curious you can't be angry because ugh, so much of people why they're not curious because they're closed-minded Mm-hmm. when really it's just like whether it's skin color spiritual background et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. biologically we're yeah. all walking mammals who have brains and these other components that we can debate over but ultimately we all want to be loved and understood unifying yeah. factors whether we yeah. want to love and understand ourselves and i'm going to just emphasize everyone should prioritize that because if you can do that with yourself then you can do it for other people Mm-hmm. Leading and, with love for sure. and, and also Elizabeth I think giving yourself permission to change your mind you're yeah. allowed to you're you're allowed to change your mind and I think that a lot of people have a lot of strange guilt around that thinking oh I have to stick this thing because I said I was going to do it and I have to do it and I have to do it forever because then people are going to think this oh god stop just pause and go, <laughs> no I'm going to change fields because I can mm-hmm. period and there should be no apologizing or proving necessary I've actually changed my name I completely agree with what you guys are saying. I was doing accounting and I was like, this is not for me. <laughs> I changed it to just regular business administration. Good. I knew that. Okay, mentoring advice though. Oh, mentoring advice? Remember to circle back oh, to oh, mentoring oh, okay. advice. So for mentoring advice, we actually had this conversation yesterday. It's pretty much like take, taking risks. Like you have to take a risk because if you don't, you will always have that what if mind. And it's pretty much like a dream. You're going to keep dreaming it until like, <laughs> like no longer there. So yeah, that's something that I've like, like right now, tomorrow, I actually just got an email today of a, of a, a testing call tomorrow that I have to attend in uh, St. Cloud. And I'm only being an extra, I'm not getting paid, but it's just something that I know that if I want to like pursue it, I have to take the risk and it's literally what I'm doing. <laughs> and how, how does that make you feel to take the risk? It feels good because like I don't I don't have that mindset of like dang I wish I could have done it I wish I could have done it man I wasted like a couple years doing this like five ten years it's like now I could be like okay see what happens because you really don't know where where it goes to it could lead to like other networking connections yeah and stuff it could lead to like something probably bigger than what you thought of that 10, 20 years from now yeah. Yeah. And what I think what I'm also hearing too, is that there's a certain satisfaction in just deciding, deciding to make that, take that risk. 
because I think a lot of us, and I steal this from my girlfriend, as she introduced me to this notion when we first met some two and a half, almost three years ago, is that you get paralysis by analysis, mm-hmm. right? And, and it feels worse to, to kind of contemplate jumping off that cliff and teetering rather than just, just jump because it's going to feel better. But when you're in that kind of pregnant pause phase where you're like, ah, should I, shouldn't I, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's, it's all wretch and no vomit. I think what I'm hearing is that there's, there is a satisfaction. I, I, I see it and I hear it even from you, Axel, you're just like, yeah, I'm going to go, I'm going to go do this thing. And I mean, what I'm feeling is just satisfaction on your end. Uh, not only that, but it's also passion. Like I, I found out that I had a passion for it when I took this improv class a couple of weeks ago. Isabel told me to take it, and that class just like I, I've never paid so much attention. Isn't that great <laughs> in my life? <laughs> so improv's um, great. Just, improv's great. Yeah. So it was, it was really cool just being able to just like get my attention. Like, okay, this is what we gotta do. Okay. And yeah. Just, like build from there. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yes, and. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth That's good, it. Jeff. That is really good. Yep. All right. So how can our listeners contact you? Share your website, your social channels, email, well, whatever you want to share. If they're watching, it's it's on my designed background here. There's only yeah. two video channels, but I will tell you, we're now on 16 podcast channels and oh, three fantastic. live stations. So fantastic. Yeah. I have my my portfolio website. When I just check out kind of that's a lot of just selective curated material that I've done that's on there. It's jeffstillion.com. My last name is Stillion. It's like stallion with an I or like million with an S-T. That's the best way. It's what I take, tell bank tellers and they're like, how do you spell that? Or anybody else? So it's a wonderful last name. So jeffstillion.com or, and then my email's on the screen. It's just jeff, jeff at jeffstillion.com. Mm-hmm. So that, that's the way you can contact me. And you want to do the Twitter thing? Sure. It's just my handle's at jstillion. Are you on so, LinkedIn? I am on LinkedIn as well because- okay. Isabel is also on LinkedIn. We are connected. We yeah. are. Yeah. Yeah. So if you find me, you'll be able to find Jeff for sure. That's, this much is true. Well, that is also really good. Thank you for sharing that, Axel. I appreciate it. So we are going to be wrapping up our show. Make sure I say thank you to Cat5 Studios, to our production team, Axel Laponte, Elizabeth Herbert, who are our associate producer interns, Ooh. video Ooh. and audio editing, Steve Neese, who is also a full sale person. I'm going to throw that one up there too. He graduated. Call. Video editing. Yep. Raymond Ahmad Khan, Berkeley Walgamot, and Mitsadi Rosales Vargas, our video interns. So for any employers, please visit us at www.internpursuit.tech to learn how you can also get matched to amazing intern talent that will help you grow your business. So thank you for supporting us.